This podcast is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Our mission is to accelerate breakthroughs in life-saving research and empower people everywhere to conquer cancer. Welcome to Your Stories, a podcast where we hear candid stories from people conquering cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Lewis. If anyone embodies the word conqueror, it's Fabia Dubik, a professional rock climber who's also appeared on extreme sports competition shows like NBC's American Ninja Warrior and USA's Race to Survive Alaska. Dr. Dubik is also a pathologist who earned a bachelor's degree in environmental science and public policy from Harvard University and a master's degree in nutrition at Columbia before attending and graduating from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in 2016. But before she was any of that, a doctor, a ninja warrior, or a professional climber with a growing list of sponsors, Fabia was a second-year medical student diagnosed with cancer. Today, we are thrilled to welcome Dr. Fabia Dubik to share the inspiring story of how her experience as a cancer survivor shaped her life, not only as a competitor and professional athlete, but as a hematopathologist who spends much of her career diagnosing cancer in others. Welcome, Fabia, and thanks so much for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. So listen, in preparing for this interview, I looked you up online and found a host of really spectacular pictures of you hanging off various rock faces and some climbing gyms. So I'll actually start by asking, where are you geographically right now? My home base is in the Southwest. I have a home in Albuquerque and a home in Arizona. I'm a little bit north of you in Salt Lake City in the Intermountain region, but uh, yeah, wonderful to share this part of the world with you. And I'm so glad that you in particular are getting out into the great outdoors and really showcasing your skill. It's wonderful to have you here with us, Fabia. You know, stories like yours are particularly meaningful to tell, and I suspect underreported, because while your narrative is, of course, unique, as an oncologist and a cancer survivor myself, I think it's wonderful to introduce to this community someone who might inspire other patients and other survivors to not just survive a noble goal in and of itself, but to thrive and to continue dreaming big. Before we get to all the incredible things that you've achieved, let's start from the beginning. I understand that you were in medical school and you were hoping to become an orthopedic surgeon when you were diagnosed with cancer. So how did that experience change not just the shape of your life, but also your career trajectory? Yes. Cancer definitely changed my entire life. I never foresaw this future. My entire life, pretty much since I was maybe six or seven, I went to be a physician and I've been doing sports since I was five. And I always just wanted to help others do their sport. And I hadn't found my sport, so I didn't know how to become a professional athlete. So I thought I would help others just thrive at being professional athletes. I did run for Harvard and I was Harvard's fastest woman for seven years. My record was broken by an Olympian, so <laughs> I don't feel too bad. <laughs> Very respectable, yes. That was my plan going into med school, which is part of the reason why I chose Case Western because they're very strong in orthopedic surgery. And I had done all this research and lab work and becoming a surgeon. And then at the middle of my second year, I started to become ill. And it wasn't technically, I guess, until my third year that I actually got the diagnosis of cancer. It took a full eight months to diagnose 
And I lived in the hospital for a month after about six months of being sick. Because at first, everyone just thinks you're the med student who thinks they have cancer because you just had the cancer block, which was true. (laughs) I just had the cancer block and I had just had the lymphoma block. And I was reading it and I was like, this is interesting. (laughs) Check, 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 check. So I I went to our local clinic and I said, oh, I think I might have lymphoma. Can I have a chest x-ray? And they, they said no. And it wasn't until months later when I couldn't breathe or swallow foods anymore. And then that's when they admitted me to the hospital and the whole story begins there. And that was when I learned about pathology. I'd never really, I know I had to study histology in med school, but I really didn't know anything about pathologists until I was sitting in this hospital bed and they were taking biopsy after biopsy because the first one was non-diagnostic necrotic tissue, second one, non-diagnostic necrotic tissue. And I remember asking the rounding physicians, when is the pathologist going to come and talk to me? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. And then they're like, no, that's not how it works. The pathologist won't come and talk to you. Um, But it made me just sitting there waiting for a whole month, dying, like every week getting sicker and sicker, made me realize that the hospital doesn't work without pathology. You just can't function. Like the, the clinicians knew that I have a mask, but we don't know what type. The oncologist can't treat me because who knows what type it is. And pathologists are the key. So I said, if I survive all of this, I want to become a pathologist to help people go from having the scary diagnosis of a mask to actually conquering it and beating it and getting treatment. Yes. Yes. I mean, so well said. I mean, as you know, as well as I do, both from a professional level and from your embodied experience, you know, these things fit together like a lock and a key. And to provide the right treatment, we have to have the correct diagnosis. So my phrase is the oncologist without the pathologist is blind. Like, I don't know what to do for my patients without doctors like you. And it sounds like you, as an ailing medical student, benefited firsthand from pathology. And I I liked your point in terms of clinical disconnect. I think pathologists, frankly, are the unsung and sometimes unseen heroes of oncology because you're right. It's actually quite rare, I think, that a patient would get to meet their uh, pathologist. As a very brief aside, I'll point out in the area of open notes, I've actually seen some exchange in the secure medical record, some questions passed back and forth between a patient and their pathologist. Again, not necessarily even with a real life interaction, but I found that a very interesting and relatively novel form of communication between the patient and the person looking at their tissue, which I, I like a lot. I actually have a clinic that I started called Dr. Fabia's Diagnosis Education Clinic, where patients bring their PAC reports to me and I explain them just for that. And so I am that pathologist for people who want that extra explanation. <laughs> Kudos to you. I, gosh, I love that. I, I can tell that you and I would get along very well as colleagues. And and for what it's worth, as a patient myself, I went through the same experience you did of basically being accused of being a hypochondriac until the point I was sick enough that people took me seriously. And it's it's actually eye-opening, I think, to you and I as healthcare professionals, that this is the process you have to go through because presumably it is the same or worse for, again, air quotes, lay people, right? You have to make a case sometimes for people to take you seriously enough. Yes, I assume it has to be worse. I can't imagine going through this whole process without having medical knowledge. 
it was hard enough with it. <laughs> exactly. Well, listen, to change gears a little bit, but again, to focus on your really remarkable attributes and, and drive, you know, I'm constantly amazed by the strength and determination that I see in my patients. But I can't say, and I'm not violating anyone's confidentiality here, I can't say I've encountered a patient of my own who is also an American ninja warrior. I think the question that came to my mind and probably everyone's mind is, how do you do that? Like after a cancer diagnosis and during and through exhaustive medical training, how did you summon this remarkable, I mean, obviously you were already an athlete, but how did you summon the particular effort necessary to train and accomplish the things that you've done? It's just, it's just incredible. You know, I didn't intend for this to happen after I finished my treatments, which required multiple surgeries that cut my pec, which makes it hard to do upper body strip things. After I had somewhat mentally recovered from the whole traumatic experience, I was ready to delve more into recovering physically. It took me months to be able to climb what we call a V0, which is like the easiest climb in a gym. It's made for people to walk in off the street who have never climbed before. And here I was, a previous climber, and I couldn't even climb these gear. But I didn't give up. I was like, eventually, I will be able to do it. And I did. And then after about a year of just climbing kind of for fun, I said, if I want to get back to where I was before, I need to train. So I made a training plan my own training plan. And within a few months, I was already stronger than I was pre-cancer. And I said, whoa, training works. <laughs> and then I never stopped. I really have to say thank you to my undergrad experience because being pre-med at Harvard plus doing environmental science and public policy, which is a called majors concentrations there, which is a concentration you have to apply to get into. And it has one of the most rigorous curriculums out of all of the things you can study. Plus doing track and being the anchor and the record holder, it took extreme time management, <laughs> time management skills that I had to learn at the age of 18, 19 years old. So by the time I was in medical school and residency, I had already learned how to work a full day, how to balance work with working out, how to even integrate the two. Instead of drinking coffee, I do push-ups. You're sleepy, do some push-ups, do some pull-ups. Like that will wake you up. <laughs> that is how I got to where I am now. And then one day, because of all my climbing, NBC reached out to me and they said like, hey, would you be on American Ninja Warrior? And unfortunately, this might go into later, but Cancer kind of never leaves you. The chemo effects have changed the rest of my life. And at this point, I wasn't that far out from chemo when they first called me up. And they gave me about maybe a month or two to prepare. I had never done any ninja obstacles ever. I was a big fan of the show, but never done it. And about four, three days before I had to compete, I came down with a kidney infection, polynephritis. Because working as a resident, I worked such long hours, I was constantly getting infection after infection. And so I actually had to like pull the IVs out of my arm the day I had to fly for Ninja Warrior. <laughs> and I told them, I'm going to compete. <laughs> you better give me my PO antibiotics. Because <laughs> I am not missing that. 
So I competed my first year with uh, a kidney infection when I was supposed to be in the hospital. <laughs> wow. Talk about, but well, I, I don't know if it was technically against medical advice, but it sounds like it might have been. That's incredible. Just for our non-medical audience to understand. So PO means by mouth. So the good doctor here said, you know what? I'm done with these intravenous antibiotics. Give me some pills because I'm going to go compete in Ninja Warrior. That is absolutely incredible. Wow. I mean, one word that came to mind as I was listening to you is discipline. Like clearly you have been for a very long time, an exceptionally disciplined person. And it sounds to me like you applied that to recovery, trying to get to and beyond your sort of pre-cancer abilities, which I think is incredibly admirable. I think you also said something there that's really, really important. Sometimes I think we conceive of cancer as this discrete episode of care, meaning you're diagnosed, you're treated, maybe you get to hear the word cure and then you're done. But what I think you're getting at is actually what comes afterwards can be chronic, it can be intractable, and you have to adjust and adapt. If I'm hearing you correctly, and again, I hope this isn't too intrusive, but were you dealing with some late side effects from chemotherapy that you found changed your physical function? What was happening there exactly? So I finished treatment in 2013. And it's 2023, and I am still feeling the daily effects from the chemo and cancer. It has not left me. I recently had surgery two weeks ago, a spinal fusion, and I can't take opioids because they make me vomit post-chemo. Before cancer, I was okay. Now, from the chemo, I can't do it. And my uh, neurosurgeon said that the chemo had messed up some receptors in my brain. And so now that I have to just take Tylenol for all major surgeries, you know, it's one thing that for me to feel that the cancer affects me every day because they cut my pecs. Like I can feel when I use my upper body that I have scar tissue where I should have muscle or I had my port in my leg where now it makes it hard to use my right leg because I have scar tissue there. But for my surgeon to tell me, you can't take this medicine that will make you feel better because chemo messed you up permanently. (laughs) I felt very validated. I was like, thank you. Someone understands. But I was like, this sucks. (laughs) I just had spinal fusion and I'm on tunnel. Now I've accepted that my life will never be the same since that one defining experience 10 years ago. Right. I I think it's the chronic illness paradigm, right? And just like we decoded PO earlier. I think the other word that that comes to mind here is when we are responsible, by which I mean oncologists are responsible for these late effects, both in the short term, everybody knows, of course, that chemo can cause nausea and vomiting and it can cause hair loss and low blood counts. But I think what's under-recognized and that you're living proof of is that these things can be permanent. And that iatrogenic harm, the injury inflicted by well-intentioned oncologists is real. And I think we need to acknowledge that, that one of the side effects I worry about the most, and maybe you can relate to this, is I worry about neuropathy. It sounds like I hit a chord. You did hit a chord, yes. Because I was on a chemotherapy that is neurotoxic. (laughs) I imagine you were, and I was sort of inferring that. Yeah, so the reason I think it matters is, you know, when you think about the, sometimes called the big four solid tumors. And again, I know you had something different, but lung cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, and prostate cancer, actually one of the things that unites them is almost all of them can be treated with what you just said, with neurotoxic drugs. 
And I think the reason that matters is even when patients can be cured of their illness, like you're clearly embodying, the lingering after effects in nerves in particular, that can be lifelong. And it sounds like to an extent you've come to terms with that, but I just want you to know as an oncologist, that is one of the things that weighs on my conscience is the knowledge that that is a side effect that I have inflicted. You know, I really, really appreciate that because as I mentioned, I just had spinal surgery because I've been having neuropathy and it's partly due to an injury that I received on my second season on American Ninja Warrior because I, I also have a connective tissue disorder and there's which means that I'm kind of prone to herniation and things like that. So Ninja Warrior wasn't the best idea for me, but I did it anyway. My discipline and determination does have this downside, but I wasn't healing from this. And from the imaging and my symptoms, they didn't line up. I kept telling people for years, like, I think I'm not healing because I was on this chemo drug that affects your nerves. And I kept getting turned down over and over again. Like, that's impossible. That's impossible. I'm like, well, how many people are you seeing that are trying to be professional athletes post-cancer? Like, these things wouldn't bother me if I wasn't trying to be one of the best climbers in the entire world. And when I found my current surgeon, he said, oh, yeah, your back's messed up because, you know, the chemo you're on and your other standalones. I was like, thank you. Acknowledging for cancer patients is so important. Yes. It's very validating, right? And again, I, I think it's important that we admit that and then you can take that knowledge and then it, it sort of allows you to, I don't know what the right word is, sort of interpret the things that you know you feel, like you know your body. And I think as an athlete, I think you are as attuned to your body as any patient. And you know that when something's different, Exactly. So now I've had to have spinal surgery at a young age from all of this. So it's, it's kind of, it's never ending, but I don't let it get me down. Right. I can tell you and I didn't know each other before this conversation. I can already tell your spirit actually is really infectious and inspiring. Let's talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about the relationship actually between your athletic achievements and your recovery. I know we already talked about this a little bit, but I just want to say, we all know that if possible, Maintaining a healthy, active lifestyle can make a big difference in cancer survivors' quality of life and ideally improve their longevity. But what you do very clearly goes beyond that. And it brings me to a bit of a chicken or the egg question. So I'm getting the sense talking to you, of course, that you were an athlete before you had cancer, but was it your determination and athleticism that helped you through your recovery or did surviving cancer sort of that being forced to confront your own mortality, did that inspire you to dream bigger and try even harder than you had before? Like, what, what do you think it was there? It's actually a little bit of both. So my determination and discipline was there way before cancer, because that's the only way that I had achieved all that I had achieved kind of before cancer, was just having a very rigid schedule and following it to a T, no matter what I wanted to do. But when I was given a few weeks to live, because that's how advanced my lymphoma was that was like oh you won't be here in a month and then surviving that it made me realize might be a little negative but made me realize bad things can happen to you so you need to enjoy every day as if it's your last and I needed to live every day to the fullest so it kind of took someone who already did a lot but never really truly appreciated 
tomorrow could be my last day. So now I live even more in a single day since cancer. And I have done that now for a decade. It's exhausting, (laughs) like utterly exhausting. I wouldn't change it because I tell people like right now, I'm probably about 90 years old. Like I have done so much in every single day, (laughs) but I have lived life to the fullest that if something bad happened tomorrow, I wouldn't be sad because I I have done my best to do everything. Forgive the expression for hematopathologist, but you've clearly sucked the marrow out of life, as they say. (laughs) Right? Sorry, that was a terrible play on words. I couldn't resist. I want to share with you a quote from my dad. I wasn't planning on doing this, but I'm going to go a little bit off script. So my, my father had cancer and as he foresaw his end, he actually wrote a book and I'm going to quote to you something he put in the book that I think you'll absolutely relate to. So he said, I think this dovetails perfectly with what you just said. He said, the crisis of cancer affords the opportunity now to discard the trivial and the shallow and to fill every moment and relationship with meaning, intensity, and value. And it's interesting, when I've shared that quote with other people, they say, Mark, that sounds absolutely exhausting. And when I hear you say what you just said, it also sounds, to your own admission, exhausting, but incredibly fulfilling. The realization, the unavoidable realization, in fact, that none of this is promised, tomorrow is not guaranteed, and as cliche as it sounds, it's cliche because it's true. We have to make the most of every day, and you're very clearly somebody that does that. Yes, I completely agree with his statement. It's so true. I mean, in a way, if I could go back, maybe I would prefer not to have cancer, but (laughs) it has molded me in a way that I feel like a much more productive member of society that I have done so much more than I would have done if I hadn't had this life-changing event. On the other hand, I would probably be in a lot less pain every day and and wouldn't have to vomit so often. But I don't go back and wish like, oh, I think things were different. I just try to like stay going forward and continue to just fill every day to the max. You can see my Google calendar. I'm already getting the sense and I have a feeling you probably get up extremely early to not only do your work, but to train. And again, your commitment to, again, getting the most of it every day, it's just, it's coming through the screen and through the audio, and I'm sure our audience can hear it. So this is going to sound like a very reductive question, Fabia, but bear with me. So you have earned many titles. I'm just going to list some of them. At the end of this, basically what I'm going to ask you to do is, is pick the one that you think best fits you. Okay. So athlete, professional climber, reality show participant, competitor, physician, and cancer survivor. Now, again, I told you this was going to be difficult. Of those, which is the one that you think best informs all the others? It's actually really easy. Athlete. Like, no question about it. Excellent. Wow. Because I actually, when I was going through my chemo treatment, I would ask my boyfriend, now husband, I would say, like, who am I now? I'm an athlete and I can't open the fridge door. His response would be, oh, well, I mean, you're going to be a doctor, like all these other, all these things you listed pretty much. But for me, it didn't matter because like who I am at my core is always and always will be and has been athlete. Wow. That's a fantastic answer. And even for someone that can only aspire to your level of fitness, I think that's really inspiring. And it also makes me wonder about the, the cognitive dissonance you must have experienced knowing what your body was capable of at these incredibly high levels. And again, congratulations on your longstanding record at Harvard. That's pretty amazing. But then 
to be debilitated, not just by your cancer, but I'm sounds like presuming still by the treatment. And again, the way that you've bridged that gulf is really, again, one person to another, one doctor to another, and one patient to another. That's that's extremely inspiring. And thank you for sharing that athlete mentality with us. It was very difficult. And I like people to know that it wasn't fast and it wasn't easy. Because honestly, I thought that after I finished my last chemo treatment and then I had my last surgery to remove the port, I honestly thought I would be the person I was pre-cancer. Like I thought that last surgery, I'd wake up and be like, hey, this all never happened. I am original Fabia. And then I woke up and I was actually the saddest I had ever been in the whole year of the whole treatment and diagnosis because I had been surviving for that year. So I was living second to second for that year when surviving was done. And I was like, crap, what did I just go through? What did I just lose? I just, I recognized that I had lost like all my athletic abilities. I had, I had lost like all my med school friends were graduating already. And I was like still in med school. Like I was so behind. It was so hard. Like that first month afterwards, it was not a celebration. Like I think I had planned a celebration and I canceled it. It went so extreme that I refused to celebrate my birthday for about eight years. And I celebrated what I called death day because there was a certain day on my chemo where I felt my soul die and I felt as if I was a different person. And so it took about eight years for me to be like, okay, I can celebrate my birthday and we no longer have to celebrate the day of my soul dying. <laughs> so, so to get to where I am now, it wasn't fast. It wasn't a month. It wasn't a year. It's been it, several years to be able to have, I guess, a positive outlook and not be bummed out about the cancer. Because I was very angry that I, afterward, not during, but afterward, I was very angry that this happened. Yes. Well, and I appreciate your candor in expressing all that. And it sounds like your soul has been resurrected and I'm very glad for that. Fabia, and I think this may sort of, you've already been telegraphed in your last answer, but you know, every survivor comes out of their cancer experience with their own unique insights. And you know, it's something you learn, I think, pre-diagnosis, during treatment, and then afterwards, as you've clearly outlined. But is there something that you wish that other people, maybe even people that were close to you and trying to support you, that they might have known. I think what we're looking for here is pragmatic advice, not just for patients who might listen to this podcast, but for their loved ones and to their support networks. Is there anything that you think listeners could learn from your story there? So I think every person is an individual and they're going to want different things. And that's so hard for the loved ones because for me, it's cancer support groups. So like, oh, go to these cancer support groups. And I went to one and it, it made me furious because for me, I was bed bound. My husband had to feed me. I couldn't walk. I was being carried to the bathroom. And these other people were talking about how they were walking their dog. And I know they were having hard experiences, but it did not help me. But my stepdad was recently diagnosed with cancer and he went to support groups and he found them very helpful. And he was like, oh, it was great to know that there's other people who were going through the same thing. So it's so individualized. For me, I needed space, but also support at the same time. 
And I am so entirely grateful for my friends and family who allow for that and didn't get offended because some days when I got my chemo, I wouldn't wake up for five to six days straight, which meant that I didn't respond to my phone. And some people were offended. They're like, oh, Fabi didn't respond. And it wasn't that I wasn't trying to be offensive. It was that I wasn't awake. A lot of my friends, like they gave me my space. They were like, we're just here. If you need something, text. If you need me to bring you something, text me, but you don't need to respond. Or after I finished treatment and I mentioned that that was my lowest point and my friends wanted to hang out, I didn't want to see a soul. And I told them, I can't see anyone right now. And I know that hurt some of their feelings because they were so excited. But when I was ready, they welcomed me back with open arms and we're still friends and still best friends and it's great. And so for me, that's what I needed. I needed for them to give me space to heal in my head and then for them to accept me when I came back. But some people may want you to send them flowers and be there every single day next to them. Yeah. I think what I'm hearing is individual results may vary and don't presume what the patient is going to want or feel like. And again, best of intentions, but it sounds like sometimes people were either wanting to be present when you wanted some solitude, or were not really being that understanding or forgiving when you were literally unable to make contact socially. So I think that that goes in both directions. I'm sure it is, and perhaps was quite fluid and you just have to check in with the patient, right? Yes, yes, just just check in and understand that sometimes for some people, chemotherapy isn't like what you see on TV. That's one of my biggest issues is that when I was getting sick, Breaking Bad was a big show and there was Walter White with some sort of cancer and making math. And then I think people are like, well, look, like he's well enough to go through cancer treatment and make drugs. Why can't Fabia respond to a text? But I sometimes was too weak to hold my phone. Spoiler alert, Breaking Bad, not a documentary, as it turns out. So fantastic show, but but not a, not a documentary. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Fabia, you know, as we close, I have to tell you, I mean, you are truly one of the more remarkable people I've ever had the privilege to talk to. And while I do think that your story is yours and yours alone, I think there are some takeaways here for listeners. and. One of those is that patients who are conquering cancer are capable of truly incredible things and that there is a deeply entwined relationship between the experience of conquering cancer and the approach to the rest of their life. And I think you've been very even-handed today in saying, hey, listen, even as a high-performing athlete, things are far from rosy. I still have physical challenges that I am overcoming, that I will overcome, but just your attitude. It's an incredible emotional ballast. And I really, really appreciate you sharing it with us today. Thank you. It's not an easy road. And one of the things that was frustrating when I was going through this was that the oncology team was there to keep me alive, but not to keep me as like the athlete. And so I would really love it if the oncology teams would say like, okay, like what are your end goals in life? Like not just living, but like, where do you want to end up? And so that was one of my frustrations. I mean, I had a great team, but their goal was to keep me alive and not to keep me an athlete. And so it was very much on me to try to figure out a way how to stay an athlete after going through this tremendous ordeal. But you can do it, everyone, you can do it. Just put your heart into it. 
I am so fired up right now. I feel like I could run through a wall. This has been awesome, Bobby. I may need to hire you as my uh, personal fitness coach, I think. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Well, listen, in all seriousness, thank you. Thank you so much. It's just been a delight to talk to you. And I know that people will take a lot away from this. And, and thank you for listening to this podcast, which is brought to you by Conquer Cancer, the ASCO Foundation. Conquer Cancer is creating a world where cancer is prevented or cured and every survivor is healthy. You can make a gift at conquer.org forward slash podcast. The participants of this podcast report no conflicts of interest related to this podcast. Full disclosures can be found on the episode page on conquer.org. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. This is not a substitute for professional medical care and is not intended for use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests on this podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Guest statements on the podcast do not express the opinions of ASCO. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy should not be construed as an ASCO endorsement.